All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good morning. Cold. Um, I don't know if anybody kept these from last week. I did bring extras just in case somebody wanted to look at them again, or maybe if you weren't here last week. I thought I'd just like maybe pass those around, Jay. I mean, I don't know if there's enough for everybody, but I did. Oh, can I keep one of them? <laughs> <laughs> I can leave. Actually, it's on here anyway, so I don't really know if I needed that. <laughs> All right, well, Jay's going ahead and passing those out. Um, somebody would be so kind. So, uh, can anyone remind us, um, as we typically do here, what was discussed last week? What were some of the points of discussion, theme of Second uh, of Timothy? Go ahead. Now we talked about the concept of the last days and how it's really not so much talking about like the end of the world, but that entire period from Jesus' ascension until it's coming. Um, this is like the last stage in God's redemptive program before he wraps everything up. Yeah, that was definitely an emphasis. The fact that the last days that Paul is describing to Timothy in this section of Scripture, I think, is coincident with the time that we live in now. Um, and the real practical application of that is that you know, this is not some future event. It's not as if we're waiting for people to start behaving in an ungodly manner. Um, this is right now. We need to be aware of these people. Um, what else? Any, anything else stick out to you from last week we talked about? I don't know if anybody remembers what I asserted was the theme of Second Timothy, maybe in one word. Uh, does anybody recall what that was? Perseverance, yeah, I heard it there. I do believe that if you kind of wanted to summarize what Timothy is trying to communicate to Paul here, um, it is this idea of perseverance. And that's part of why uh, persecution has been on my mind when I offered it as a praise and a prayer request. You know, I mean, in 2 Timothy 3.12, which we'll get to in a few weeks, Paul says anyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that you know, obviously doesn't have to mean that you're in a cold jail cell for 15 years of your life you know, eating maggot-infested bread, but it could potentially mean that, and even if it doesn't, there are other ways in which we'll face persecution, and so we need to be you know, prepared for that. It's not a, you know, you might face persecution, it's you will face persecution if you are a godly saint. So, um, but, but, but Paul wants Timothy to be able to endure these persecutions, and not only persecutions, but just opposition, maybe is a, another way to say, um, to, 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 another way to say it, I guess, basically, you know, Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, you're going to face people who are not going to like what you have to say. And I think if we think about this entire section of Scripture as an instruction manual to Timothy, uh, as a young pastor, he wants to make sure pa Timothy understands, at least starting in chapter 3, that you're not going to win popularity contests necessarily by being a faithful pastor. That's you know, important for anybody aspiring to be a pastor today. But it's not just for pastors, really. I mean, if you think about it, the work of an evangelist is in some ways similar, uh, maybe in a smaller scope, to that of a pastor. So any of us who desire to be Faithful disciples, um, carriers of the word to others, need to understand that these things will happen to us too. Uh, anything else that stuck out to you? And then I can kind of do my own summary. But last week? Okay, well, as I said, the theme is perseverance and holding fast that which is good. I reference 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, when Paul commands the church at Thessalonica to hold fast that which is good. 
And I said, basically, the paper that you have in front of you is an instruction manual on how to do that. You know, I mean, those imperatives, those list of commands, you know, if you're struggling with enduring difficult times, you could almost certainly find a command in that list of commands that Paul gives to Timothy uh, that will remind you uh, of how to hold fast that which is good and how to endure and persevere through times of difficulty. One of the time, one of the things that was mentioned last week is the way in which we don't necessarily prepare people who we evangelize or people who we uh, share the gospel with for the difficulties that are ahead. And we probably should do a better job of that. Uh, I mean, I mentioned it last week, but just a cursory glance at the New Testament and particularly Second Timothy chapter 3 would refute the idea that the prosperity gospel is is an accurate representation of the gospel, right? It's no gospel at all. Uh, and not just the prosperity gospel in the sense that you'll be rich and healthy, but this kind of life enhancement gospel, right? That I come to Jesus and that somehow is making me reach my full potential or become a, my, my, the best version of myself. Uh, that's just not the message that the New Testament has for us. I mean, just a couple of verses from Scripture. 2 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And I already read this one, and it's in our text, but 2 Timothy 3.12, Anyone who wishes to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or Jesus' words in John 15.20, when he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Um... Again, Paul is emphasizing to Timothy, expect difficult times ahead. Expect this to be trialsome at some point in time in your life. You're not going to be greeted with favor and fame all the time. So uh, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So again, just a direct refutation of this idea that if I come to Jesus, this is going to just make life all hunky-dory, right? And so that really is one of the themes, but particularly it's the theme of chapter 3, right, or the beginning of chapter 3 with Timothy. We also talked last week about the way in which this is connected to chapter 2, right? That fir The first word of the chapter is but, and um, we're going to get a couple of these words as we read through the text in chapter 3, but uh, I don't know if anybody used this acronym in middle school. Um, I just learned of it, but it's kind of helpful. Uh, fanboys, does anybody know what I'm talking about? You do? Okay. What, there you go, yeah. So when we get those words, I don't know if anybody heard what Carol said, but for and nor but or yet, or yet so, right? Fanboys. Uh, those words in Scripture are important because they're connecting ideas, right? They're really conjunctions. So two statements that could stand alone, but they're being connected in some way. We start out chapter 3 with this word but. It's connecting back to something that Paul said to Timothy in chapter 2. And what, what was Paul saying in chapter 2? If you can remember back to what Jay was teaching on the last couple of weeks. Any takers? It was really reinforcing the idea that you ought to be gentle with people. You ought to not pursue endless rabbit trails of debate on theological issues that maybe aren't of the utmost importance, or even if they are of the utmost importance, you know, state your case plainly and then let it be. Don't make that your full-time ministry. Um, but you know, endure evil patiently, correct people gently, do all these things. This is all; these are all commands that Paul gives to Timothy with respect to his conduct. And then he goes into chapter three and he says, "But." Okay, even though I've said that, don't expect it to be easy. Um, and then we get in verse 2 to this other fanboy word, right, for. He's connecting another idea. He's saying for, which you could basically substitute the word because with the word for, right? So don't expect it to be easy because people will behave this way. And that's where we get into our text today, right? But pay attention to those words when we, um, when we see them because they give us important clues 
as to what's being talked about. So let's go ahead and read chapter 3, and I'll start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Okay, I know last week when I opened it up for comments, a couple things stuck out to people. Um, Vicki mentioned the way in which recklessness is almost celebrated in today's culture. I think Pastor Tim mentioned the way in which disobedience to parents is listed not only here but in Romans 1. Um, that is interesting if you think about the fact that he's kind of writing to Timothy about characteristics of false teachers. That's not necessarily one that we typically associate with false teachers. But um, what else sticks out to you guys after reading that text? Anything else grab your attention? Go ahead. Yeah, this time around, that word heartless jumped off the page. I mean, it's interesting. Like, it seems to suggest kind of like a lack of healthy affection, lack of healthy like emotional engagement. And for some reason, like as cultures and people stray farther and farther from God, even their emotions will be all out of whack and they won't respond appropriately, you know, with, with, with the ordinary human affections that they should. Which is just kind of interesting to think through the like almost like the psychological, like the mass psychological implications of cultures rejecting God. Like entire cultures' emotions won't function properly. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, and given heartless a ton of thought, so it is interesting. Um, what else? Anything? Go ahead, Mickey. I think the sobering thing is always learning and yet never able to arrive at the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it is interesting. And I, I looked at that, and, and who do you think that's describing? I mean, we might get into this a little later. Is it the people that are leading the women astray, or is it the women that are being led astray? Because if you kind of read it in the English there with the comma, um, the most commentaries would, would say that's talking about the women who are being led astray. So the weak women burdened by sins, burdened or burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, uh, are kind of in this you probably can think of somebody in this category, you know, who's kind of always on to the next fad, who's kind of always ready to jump on the bandwagon, whatever it may be, but never really commits to anything. Um, and and you know, we'll talk more about that when we get to that verse, but yeah, obviously beware of that and try not to be be that way. Anything else? Yeah, go ahead, Kathy. Again, the so much of our culture uses the words of Christianity in the Bible, but not in the way that brings power Yeah, that's that's huge, I think, in this section, that particular phrase there, because really uh, before that, all those other things are adjectives describing, you know, the people, and it seems as if you know, they might possess one of those things, but not all of them. But then there's that comma, and then it says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, which seems to be kind of describing everybody in that group. And again, we'll talk about who the group is specifically in a second. But yeah, I mean, we're, we live in a time where that's 
popular. And I, and I wonder if it makes it harder because, you know, it's, again, for the better part of American history, it's actually kind of been a positive thing on your resume to be a Christian. So lots of people want to have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. The other thing that maybe we'll talk a little bit more about is what what is the power of God? Um, I just heard a, a famous, well, I guess maybe infamous pastor, uh, kind of a defector of the faith, used this verse to describe the cessationist viewpoint because just recently, because he said that, you know, we as those who maybe reject the idea that there are continued prophets and miracle workers today are denying the power of God. So we're the people that have the appearance of godliness yet deny its power. And the reason I point that out is just to remind us that it's always very important to define our terms. You know, what is the power of God? Um, what does that mean? So all very good points. Uh, one thing that stuck out to me is this idea of not loving good. Um, that's odd because, you know, the other things, if you ask somebody, they may deny them on the surface, but deep down they kind of know that, you know, yeah, I'm not really being obedient to my parents. Maybe I am being slanderous or I am ungrateful. Um, but it's, it's interesting that they don't love good. And I don't think anybody, if you ask them, do you love good would say, no, I don't, I don't love good. You know, I'm not, not for that. And yet it's kind of a reminder that even the people in this category are themselves deceived. You go down a little bit further in the text, um, Verse 13 in chapter 3, he says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, right? So you, know, you think about that in our culture, this idea of not loving good. Um, well, we, we do see that. And a lot of times it, it seems to have something to do with the traditional biblical idea of family, you know, whether it's the gender that God gave you or marriage or the idea that, you know, there's different roles for men and women. It seems like our culture just hates that which God has ordained as good. And so we see that and they don't realize that at the time, you know, or if you talk to them that that's, the very thing that is not good, but um, we definitely see that today. And it kind of goes back to defining that word good, like I talked about at the beginning of last week. If we're going to hold fast that which is good, we got to know what is good. People in this category don't even love what is good, according to Paul. So um, all good comments. One last call. Anything else that stuck out to you here before I kind of go into the text verse by verse? Okay. Again, I want to look at those important words, those conjunctions or connectors, um, because they do help kind of tell the story or give us a Cliff Notes version of what Paul is talking about here. So I'm going to go over it broadly, and then we'll go back in and uh, zero in on the specific characteristics that Paul lists here. So first of all, remember, chapter 2 has a list of imperatives, and if you look at your uh, sheet that's in front of you there, that's where most of the imperatives come from. I mean, most of them are in chapter 2. But Paul is kind of commanding Timothy, here's how you ought to conduct yourself. Um, but, as we already mentioned, chapter 3, verse 1, but don't expect it to be easy. Verse 2, for or because people will behave in all sorts of ungodly manners. They're going to make it difficult for you as the leader of the flock. Um, because one, you're going to have to fight these temptations, um, or not these temptations, but these opposers all the time. Uh, and that's just by nature probably difficult and perhaps uh, Pastor Tim can attest to, you know, having to kind of push back against false teaching on a regular basis. I don't know if that's something you experience a lot here, but um, still maybe groups or organizations that don't align with us doctrinally, it may be difficult to kind of push back. Honestly, a little bit. not so much. Um, <coughs> I think we're, I think we're upfront about it enough mm -hmm. that I think a lot of false teachers will go to like the weaker. You know, it's kind of like when you're running from a bear, you don't need to be the fastest person on the planet, you just need to be faster than the guy, you know? <laughs> sure. So I think we're clear enough and uh, firm enough on our convictions that that hasn't been a huge problem. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, of course, you know, maybe there's in subtle ways that I'm not aware of. Sure, but nonetheless, the outline kind of is 
behave this way. Don't expect it to be easy because people are going to push back. Um, I also think there's something in there because we get to the next fanboy's word. It's actually verse five, right? Uh, he says, avoid such people. Or is it verse six? Sorry, I'm going to get my text here. Oh, it's verse six. After verse five, where it says, avoid such people. So people are going to behave this way. Avoid such people for, again, there's an important word to say, because among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Now, what's Paul saying? I mean, that, that is rather strange for Paul to command Timothy to avoid these people because among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. I mean, Timothy is not a weak woman. At the very least, Paul could have said, tell weak women to avoid these people. But, so why does, he say to Paul, or why does he say to Timothy, avoid people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women? Any thoughts, ideas? Yeah, I think that's what's in mind here. It kind of go back all the way up to chapter two. Paul uh, basically is saying, "Here's how you ought to behave yourself as a pastor." Really, you know, he's talking to Timothy and he's telling him, "Entrust what you have learned to faithful men who are also able to teach." He's kind of giving him instruction manual as a pastor. And again, this applies to us. You know, when we're discipling others, when we're evangelizing others, we we got to be. Careful how you know we have we, we do have influence over them, but I do think he specifically has in mind here the idea of shepherding the flock, and so when he says uh, don't let these false teachers you know be among you, avoid such people because they'll creep in and basically take advantage of weak women. I think he has in mind here that if you as the leader of the flock will not put to death these false arguments, these false teachings, they will sneak in and they will the people who promote them will have influence over the weaker members of your congregation. Um, and I think he uses a class of people, particularly in that time, that probably would have had the most vulnerability. You know, I mean, particularly in an age where we don't have or didn't have social security and government assistance. You know, if you were a widow and hadn't, you know, reached a, um, an age where you had enough wealth to support yourself, you know, you're particularly vulnerable and, and maybe you weren't even a widow, but you weren't married. So weak women... Um, I think it applies to more than women, though. I mean, it's definitely today, those who are vulnerable. And I think another little side note here is that if you let these people hang around, you're going to be influenced by them. I mean, Satan loves to influence us where we're the weakest. So, you know, yeah, Paul is talking to this idea, though, that Timothy should avoid these people because if he doesn't, uh, they're going to have an influence on the flock. And he needs to separate himself from them. And that's that's difficult. I mean, I think We've just talked about it, but we do a pretty good job here. I don't want to be, you know, arrogant, but of not allowing false teaching and uh, false ideas and false teachers to come in and, and permeate what we do. Um, it's, I think it's even part of the reason why we avoid certain music. You know, you can think about certain contemporary worship music that is maybe not necessarily heretical on the surface, but you know, the people that associate with that are people that we would say, hey, avoid such people. So we're not even going to bring that in because it can have an influence on especially the weaker vessels of the church. But I think that's a command to Timothy as a pastor. Go ahead. I think the use of the word creep was interesting because things like, you know, heretical teaching and everything happen little by little. Mm -hmm. You know, it reminds you of the analogy of the frog in boiling water. You know, you sure. throw, throw a frog in boiling water, he's going to jump out. Yeah. But you put him in lukewarm water, he's going to be okay. But you turn out the heat, he's just going to cook. Mm -hmm. he, he won't realize it. And that's how false teachings usually start. You start by getting a female pastor, and then you start mm -hmm. affirming gay marriage, and, and things just things creep in, and mm -hmm. it happens little by little. And so he's saying, watch out for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. 
That is certainly true, but it is interesting that most of the things you mentioned aren't really doctrinal sins. They're more like ethical lifestyle things. So the things that have got to be, I mean, by all means, we do not tolerate heresy. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we can prove that in other passages. But if you just go back a couple of verses, the things that he's got to watch out for are people that are like lovers of money, disobedient mm -hmm. parents. Um, so those, you know, maybe just as much as being concerned with like heresy, mm -hmm. and also need to be concerned with people that are just living in ungodliness and not really fighting against their sin. That's a good point. And, and in, in addition to that, I guess here's a question for the group is, who do you think that Paul is talking about in this particular section? Um, I mean, who specifically is he talking about, if anybody? Because I'll, I'll just start by saying this. If you look at the word people in verse 2, I mean, I looked that up in a Greek lexicon. It just means people. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have any specific identifiers with it. So we have to use context clues if, if we think this is talking about just anyone. Um, or I should say, if we don't think it's talking about just anyone, who does Paul have in mind when he's writing this particular section of Scripture? Yeah, well, I think probably. I mean, it could maybe maybe not necessarily, but probably. Go ahead, David. What were you going to say? I think it's false teachers. Yeah, I think it's false teachers, but I think it's really maybe not limited to just who we view as pastors and elders. I think it maybe is people who have influence. I say that for a couple of reasons. Um, did I cut you off? Were you going to say something else, David? Okay. Um, in chapter 2, verse 16, if you flip back there, he says something that parallels what he says in verses 5 and 6 here. He says, avoid irreverent babble for, very important word again, because it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, right? And then afterwards, he says, their talk will spread like gangrene. And so there's this idea that whatever is infiltrating the church is spreading. It's, you know, whoever's uh, disseminating it has influence, has clout, has the ability to get this thing to move, right? Go back to verse 3 where we, we, were, just, uh, we were just at. Verse 5 says, avoid such people, just like chapter 2.16 said, avoid irreverent babble. And then again, that word for or because among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Uh, in chapter 2, he said, because it will lead to more ungodliness. I think there's this um, idea that if we allow people to come in and... Sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought. I had something in mind, but... Sorry, anybody remind me what I was going to say? Never <laughs> 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 happened to you? Go ahead. Uh, Honestly, not so much. But on your <laughs> point, uh, yeah, don't think false teachers are only those that like have a pastor before their name or you know ordained elder. I, this is something I have experienced in ministry. You know, maybe somebody who's just like an ordinary pew sitter, but they're especially vocal and they're really pushy with like heretical stuff. Um, you know, they might not have the title of pastor, but through their sort of you know influence, they can be leading people astray. So they need to be aware. Now, of course, we want to welcome. You know, non-Christians, I mean, you know, share the gospel with non-Christians, but you know, there does come a point where I think in common sense we can tell that this particular person is not open. Instead, they're here and they're pushing their agenda, and it is, you know, false teaching. So beware that don't think that false teachers are only people who are like, you know, ordained or you know, have elder in front of their name or something like that. Because I have seen just ordinary, you know, for lack of a better term, ordinary folks spreading false teaching yeah thanks that yeah prompted my memory i'm not sure just went blank there but basically yeah we're talking about more than or i believe we're talking about more than just somebody who is ordained or has pastor behind their name we're talking about people who have 
the appearance of godliness, but deny its power, right? That's who's being talked about here. So to your point, Chris, I guess they might be outside of the church if they're, you know, maybe, but probably, yeah, they're in the church, right? Uh, Kevin brought this up last week, but the way in which most of Paul's writings really don't deal with secular um, people, not so much the pagans, not so much the politics of the day, but most of the time we're talking about people within the church. I, I think that really the verses two through five are kind of a summary of wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, right? I mean, that's really who's being talked about here. People who creep in, kind of look godly in some manner, um, but really when you examine the fruit of their lives, uh, they deny the power that you know godliness would have if somebody were to be truly saved. So I think we're talking about people not of the world per se here. I mean, I'm reminded of um, Paul's words. I won't get it exactly right where he says, you know, if, I'm not talking about the pagans when I'm talking about don't associate with sexually immoral people because if we weren't to associate with them, we'd have to leave the world entirely. I'm talking about people in the church, right? I'm talking about somebody who claims the name of brother, don't even eat with such a person, right? I think that's who's being talked about here. And that's important because, again, when you get to the command, which is to avoid such people in verse 5, I mean, what, what does that mean? If, if it's talking about everybody, then that just means we have to basically you know, give up and you know, leave, leave the earth, right? Now, I think we are talking about people who identify as Christians. Furthermore, to push that point a little bit harder, I don't think it's talking about just any Christian who is, and I thought a lot about this, so feel free to disagree, but I don't think it's talking just about any Christian who might have a doctrinal issue that you disagree with. Uh, I don't even necessarily think it's somebody who believes in false teaching. I think it is talking about those who are spreading false teaching. Um, and, and I say that because, you know, again, what's our duty as Christians in terms of the way we would interact with people that maybe disagree with our beliefs or exactly how we would understand certain texts of scripture? Are we to totally isolate them and say, all right, you know, we're going to excommunicate you from the church because, um, you know, you have a different view in terms of your soteriology or something to that effect. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I think he's clearly talking about people who are intentionally manipulating, leading people astray, um, using ministry as a guise to kind of advance their own personal agenda. Um, otherwise, we'd be in a position where you know we'd be constantly having to say, well, so-and-so maybe doesn't agree with me on this, so i got to not talk to them. Um, I, I'll give a couple of reasons for that and then an example, but any thoughts on that? You know, is, is Paul talking about just anybody who calls themselves a Christian? And specifically, I'm thinking like, maybe not, okay, so go back to the point about being in the church. Um, maybe thinking about like people who call themselves Christians just outwardly. Are they in this group of people? Um, I'll just give an example. When I was in college, my roommate, you know, would loosely, I mean very loosely, call himself a Christian. And I remember going over 1 Corinthians five with him talking about, you know, hey, you know, I'm not even supposed to eat with somebody if they're going to call themselves a Christian and, you know, they don't live like one. And I think he took it well, but I, I look back on that and I'm not sure if that's exactly the application of that text. You know, is anybody who just calls themselves a Christian in this group of people, do I have to avoid them? Or do we need to look for something more than that? What are your thoughts? Anybody? Go ahead. Are these necessarily people who are like teaching false stuff? I mean, I guess in their life, like maybe they have perfectly sound doctrine or seemingly sound doctrine, but their lives are these things are characteristic in their life. I don't know. Well, I think it's as we've already mentioned more than just doctrine, but again, I, I think it's all it seems to again, correct me or feel free to disagree, but it does seem to be tied to the idea that these people are creeping into the church and having influence, like not just. They're living ungodly, but the reason that you should avoid them is because they'll actually have influence on the people of the church. And so if there's somebody who's maybe 
you know, like my roommate that didn't even go to church. I don't think he probably fits in that category. Um, that's my opinion, but anyway, anybody else have thoughts on this particular issue? Go ahead. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, still, as pagan as our country is, it's like over 70% claim to be Christian. But they have no idea what that even means. It's, you know, okay, I'm not a Mormon, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Jew, I guess I'm a Christian. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about people that, like, you know, publicly identify as Christians and probably are tied to some church, but either embrace and teach a false gospel or are just flagrant, flagrantly sin. But you're, you know, your average Joe on the street that, like, you know, doesn't. Even there, it could get tough, and so I, I did. I really appreciated what Costi Hinn had to say regarding this particular issue. Most of you probably are familiar with Costi Hinn, um, the nephew of, if you're not, the nephew of Benny Hinn, who's probably one of the most notable false teachers, um, and it's really not even arguable. Uh, but Costi was part of Benny's ministry for a while, and then repented, and you know has since embraced the gospel of grace alone by faith alone and Christ alone. And speaking about kind of how he addresses this idea. Uh, he referenced Jude 22 through 23. And in that particular section of Scripture, uh, Jude says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, or finally a third group here, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And he talks about the way in which he would regard his uncle as somebody in the third category, somebody that we should hate, we should show mercy to with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so there does seem to be three categories that Jude lays out. One is those who doubt, maybe are skeptical, maybe aren't even committed Christians, but have some kind of interest in Christianity, have mercy on them. Second group of people, they're in the fire. You know, they're, they're clearly not walking with the Lord, but maybe they've been deceived. Uh, they're not necessarily promulgating their false teaching, but they're just in deception. Uh, snatch them out of the fire. And then finally, the third group, and I think that's, this is who Paul, Paul is talking about in 2 Timothy 3, Show mercy with fear. So we still show mercy. Go back to chapter 2. We still endure evil patiently. We still correct gently, but we hate even the garment stained by the flesh. I think that's the people that are being described here in, in chapter 3 of, of 2 Timothy. So um, but that's my thought regarding that issue. And I thought, you know, Costihan of all people has a, a good perspective on that because, you know, he's obviously dealing with false teachers. So let's review. Oh, you going to say something, like? Yeah. One thing that kind of strikes me about uh, organizations and, and church is that, um, you know, like in the Reformation, you know, Martin Luther, the church kind of gets off in way wrong direction and comes back. And even now, the Catholic Church is, you know, having issues with, you know, people leaving the Catholic Church, you know, being Christian. You know, and then the same thing, you know. Tim mentioned the Methodist Church is going through this. Mm -hmm. It seems like all big organizations seem to be have a hard time keeping their focus or losing their focus, and, and which is interesting. I mean, uh, I, I I kind of appreciate the, the Baptists because they they don't have this big organization, you know, that, but um, but it seems like leaders naturally over time go the wrong. Yeah, well, if there's not a commitment to biblical, I would say biblical 
inerrancy and you know the Bible as the authority, then it seems like that does happen. Um, you know, particularly as it pertains to the command to avoid such people, you know, where where do we draw that line? I think is is the question, and you know that's kind of what I'm getting at here. Is I think I think in in this specific context, Paul is referring to people who are um, maybe pushing a false narrative. But that that then gets us into the practical application of this. Is okay, so what does it mean to avoid these people? And then what are ways we can identify those whom we should avoid? Where do we see them in culture today? So I'll open it up to the group. Um, what are what are ways we can identify people who belong to this category? Any thoughts? Number one, I think we can, you know, be Bereans. We got to search our Bibles. Somebody comes to you talking about some idea um, that is ungodly. Uh, we've got to be able to go to the text and see if that's actually what the Bible teaches. Secondly, um, I think, and hopefully I'm preaching to the choir here, but get involved in a good local church where you can observe the lives of the leaders up close and personally. Um, you know, I'm much, hopefully, hopefully you're less likely to go astray and apostatize if you're connected to a Bible-believing, God-fearing church that's teaching the Word of God each and every week. Uh, and not only that, you can observe the, you know, you, you can kind of look at Pastor Tim's life and say, okay, just, do we see any of these characteristics in him? Um, and if that's kind of your main connection to the body of Christ, it's much less likely that you're going to find yourself listening to some, you know, wolf dressed in sheep's clothing on the internet. Um, I, you know, if Pastor Tim recommends a book, I don't typically go do a background check on the author of the book. I kind of trust that, you know, our pastor is, has, you know, faithfully considered these things, right? And so basically, I think if you're connected at the closest point um, to a good God-fearing church, then, you know, it's much less likely that you'll be susceptible to these types of people. Any thoughts, questions? Go ahead. Additionally, it also seems like the people described here are not fighting against these sins, but just sort of like happily tolerating them. Because I mean, a lot of these, you know, I struggle with pride and I struggle with arrogance. And, you know, so to, to say that, you know, you, you can't have a trace of these in your character is just, you know, impossible and to contradict so much of the rest of the Bible. So it seems like these people are just sort of like content to stew in these character traits and not really fight against them. Yeah, obviously. I don't think it's discussing, you know, you can never have been ungrateful. Obviously, that would disqualify pretty much everyone. Um, but this idea that their lives are characterized by these things, which again, Paul doesn't really give us a, a specific instruction on, you know, how to identify this. So, so much of this does have to be discernment. You know, how do I know if somebody is a lover of self, lover of money, proud, arrogant, abusive? But, you know, again, then that means we've got to evaluate the fruit of their lives. And so um, that, that can be the difficult part. But I do think the first one there, which is what we'll get into now, is probably the most helpful in identifying whether somebody is legitimate or not. And that's this love of self. Right. So, so far, we've given the outline here. We've got these words that connect ideas. Timothy, live this way, chapter 2, but don't expect it to be easy, verse 1 of chapter 3, because people will behave in all sorts of ungodly manners. Avoid people who behave in ungodly manners because they will exert influence over your congregation and even you where you are weak. And then finally, you go all the way down to verse 10, and he says, however, which is another word that connects ideas, right? This is not who you are. So he reminds Timothy of, of who he is and who he has been. And that's really the pattern of this text that we need to follow along or follow as we go along. <coughs> but I think to identify these false teachers that we're talking about or false influencers, I'll call them for lack of a better word, 
Um, we need to start by kind of looking at the list. And that first list there is people who will be lovers of self. Uh, this is, I believe, the distinct mark, the distinct mark, like the most distinguishing mark of all unbelievers. And we get this question a lot, um, maybe in our discussion groups or even in contexts and formats like this, where how, how do we know if somebody's really a believer? And they, they say they're a believer, but they don't really exhibit all of the fruit that I would expect to see in a believer. Maybe they go to church. Um, I think behind everyone who's truly a, well, I shouldn't say truly a false convert, but is a false convert is this love of self. Now, I, I recognize that even saying that, that can be difficult to identify. But this is one of the things that I really do appreciate about uh, Ray Comfort and Living Waters. I don't know if most of you are probably familiar with him, right? And some people might say, well, I don't like the straight preaching style. But if you ever watched one of his interviews with an individual, what's the first question that he asks them usually? Are you a good person? Are you a good person, right? And I think he's kind of got this idea in mind. I don't know if he would reference Second Timothy 3 or not, but there seems to be at, at heart this idea that if I can kind of identify how somebody views themselves, then I kind of know where they stand in relationship to their salvation, right? And so these false teachers, you know, how do they view themselves? Um, we live in a culture that loves to promote self, right? Every time that I read this passage of scripture, I'm, I'm al I always am reminded of Terrell Owens. Does anybody know who Terrell Owens was? A really good wide receiver, played for a couple teams, but he was a total diva, total prima donna. Every time, you know, a team acquired him, it was like, okay, do we really want, he's really talented, but do we really want all the problems that he brings? And he was quoted on more than one occasion, you know, at least he wasn't shy about it. You know, he, he said, I love me some me, right? And I think kind of, I know that's kind of humorous, but if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, that's pretty much all of us, right? Before our moment of conversion is we love us some us. And he pretty much just described the sinful nature of, of human beings prior to the moment of conversion. So uh, we see this love of self everywhere. I think that the love of self is really the, I heard one pastor say it this way, the sewer pipe through which all of the other sins flow, right? I mean, really, Paul could have said, understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people who will be lovers of self. And he could have just stopped. He didn't really have to even go into the detail that he does. It's helpful, but it, it, wasn't, it almost wasn't necessary because any of those things that follow really stem from the love of self. Lovers of money, you know, we know in Scripture it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I would say if it's the root of all kinds of evil, the love of self is the seed that had to be planted for the roots to even take hold, right? Why do I love money? Because I love myself, or I want to enhance my status before people, or I want to you know, consume more materials for myself. Why am I proud? Why am I arrogant? Because I think highly of myself. When I abuse people, what am I doing? I'm using people, and that's the whole root of that word, is to abuse them you know, for some selfish gain. So really that love of self is the, the origin of all sin. Go back to Lucifer's fall from heaven. You know, he loves himself. He thinks highly of himself. Uh, John Calvin put it this way, this love of self is the foundation for all the depravity that follows in Paul's description. But readers should note that lovers of themselves, which comes first, can be regarded as the source from which all the others that follow spring. So what are some ways that our culture feeds into this? I mean, if we're trying to identify who people would be in this category, who we ought to avoid, um, what are some ways that our our culture kind of feeds into this love of self. Any ideas or thoughts? Yeah, that's the first thing I have here, right? Social media for sure. Um, we live in, I, I think the pastor that had talked about it being the sewer pipe through which all other sins flow um, talked about this is just, we, we live in the most narcissistic culture ever. And I'm not trying to, you know, guilt trip everybody, but it's just like, think about living in a different time in a different place. They would look at us and think, 
you guys are really full of yourselves. You know, you build entire shrines to our to yourself. We call them pages or profiles, but it's just this you know big page about it's just about me, right? I mean, I love me, and I'm not saying you know that you've got to get off Facebook or social media, but at the core of a lot of it really is this love of self. You know, I want everybody to look at me. Um, what else? Other ways? Go ahead. Before we get too far down that track, can I like gently push back a little bit? Sure. Um, there are a couple of verses that seem to suggest that it's like impossible to not love yourself. Mm -hmm. Let me explain what I mean before I, before y'all jump on me. But like you know, Jesus says, "Love your neighbor as you love yourself," mm -hmm. implying that we naturally do love ourselves. Uh, Ephesians five, uh, you know, Paul says, "Love your wife like you love your own body," because no one ever hated himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and what's more, like there is a sense in which part of the reason I pursue knowing God is because it is what's best for me, and you know, I, I believe it's what's, you know, in, in a way, it is loving myself to pursue God, to love God, to know God. So, is there a way in which we can harmonize these things? You know, is Paul here talking about loving yourself in a different way than, say, Jesus says when he says, "Love your neighbor as you love yourself," or Paul says, "You know, love your wife like you love yourself." Uh, is, is there maybe a Sinful nuance. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. I mean, anybody want to respond before I do? Go ahead, Carol. I, I think it all has to do with motives and glory. If if I if I'm loving my neighbors myself, I um you know of course yes we take care of ourselves, but we're trying to lift them up, not lift up ourselves, right? As 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 we would, you know, and in all in like in, in all in all like in in Matthew, I think it's five, it could be six, but where you know when you when you you do all these things and you shout the trumpets in the synagogues and you pray these long prayers and you lift up all this kind of stuff, obviously you know he says they have their reward in full. They love themselves. They're taking the glory. So I, I really feel like he, but he says, what do you do? Go into your closet and pray, and your father who sees you in secret, when he sees you, will reward you openly. Okay, that's loving yourself because it's doing things God's way. It's it's channeling every bit of glory to Him, living according to His instructions. That's loving yourself because that's how He loves us. We should love ourselves because He loves us, and we're made in His image, and we're you know a temple of the Holy Spirit. So I think it all comes always down to the heart. You know, I I'm take I'm loving myself if I'm taking good care of myself. You know, the body of the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I'm serving Him selflessly. But yet, that's his design. That's why I'm here. Knowing my calling, understanding he's gifted me to do something. I want to serve him. I want to please him. Pleasing him is my goal, not getting glory from other people. Yeah, I, I, And I would only kind of piggyback on that, but just saying, I guess I'm, I'm understanding those two. I think you are too, but I mean, that to care for yourself. So let's just use a real example at, you know, men's breakfast that a couple weeks ago, we talked about taking care of our bodies, you know. And so... You know, James has kind of challenged us to you know take care of our bodies a little bit, right? So we've been doing a little bit of that. Just me and Jay have, and that's you know good. We want to try to work out and be in shape, but that can obviously become a love of self if I got a long ways to go before I can really strut my stuff. But I mean, the point is like, if I want to like flex my muscles, that's obviously different than saying you know I should probably not eat like a ton of junk food all the time. That's you know, I don't know that. I, I think there's probably more of a spiritual element to it than I just use something that came to mind real quick there. But like you know. Obviously, I want to love myself in a way that, you know, I don't want to go to hell. I want to be enjoy the riches, the spiritual blessings that God gives me, and I want to care for my neighbor in that same way. But clearly, here, Paul's talking about people that we ought to avoid because they love themselves. So, for I guess for the sake of the conversation that we're having now, I don't know how much more we're going to have, but is this idea that, you know, who are people that would fit into this category that we ought to avoid 
who love themselves. And how do we, where do we see it? And not only that, but, you know, because we talked about it earlier, all of us are victim of these sins occasionally. Hopefully they don't characterize your life, but, you know, what are ways that we engage in it? Um, so I don't know if that response was adequate or not, but, you know, is that kind of what you're thinking? I have a theory. Okay. I wonder if it's like loving yourself with, like eternity in view compared to loving yourself with only this life in view. Sure. Because if I love myself with only this life in view, you know, kind of like what Paul says in First Corinthians, let's eat and drink and, you know, for tomorrow we shall die. You know, let's just live it up, you know, get drunk. Uh, you know, that would be a lover of myself only on the, like this worldly plane. But if I'm loving myself with like eternity in view, you know, God is real, the Bible is true, heaven and hell are real, then I'm going to do things like store treasure in heaven. You know, not, not live so much for this life. So I wonder if that's really the difference. Um, because I don't want to, you know, we don't want to so interpret this that we contradict other verses. Sure. Other verses seem to suggest that we do love ourselves by living God's way, doing, you know, pursuing His will. Mm -hmm. um, but I wonder if the real distinction is they're just living for this world and this life with no thought to the life to come. I would agree with that. That's, yeah. a, that's a, exactly what I would say. And the, the point is, the difference, I think, is pride. Like if I'm giving a gift to someone anonymously, right? I'm I'm doing I'm loving my neighbors myself. I'm doing that. I'm doing it for God, and I'm doing it for maybe eternal rewards, which isn't a bad thing to seek either. You know, I, God never says don't. You know, He wants us to please Him and strive for the gold, silver, precious stone. But if I if, if it's about pride, you know, and that and loving myself, and that, that is loving myself in a negative way with pride. So you have to love yourself in all humility and gratefulness. For what God has blessed you to do for Him, and and just channel that honor to Him, which is really hard to do. But you know, you know. Anyway, so I think the difference is selfless pride and loving yourself in, in a humble way versus seeking your glory. You know, all our glory needs to be deflected to God. Because sure, and I, I yeah, I, I agree with what's being said here, and I don't think there's any contention at all. But um, I always think about that verse because we're going to have to end here anyway. So I'll just when Paul says. Um, because I think I can't, I can't do this. But when he and maybe you can provide context better if you know, or somebody else can. But where he talks about, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but um, wishing that he was a curse for the sake of his brethren. Is he literally saying there that I would rather endure hell for all of eternity so that you people can be saved? Because that would seem to almost contradict the idea that I should love myself even to eternity. Now that's only one place I can think of it. But I agree with what you're saying, and yet I've always wrestled with this idea: Am I supposed to love others so much? I mean, Jesus did i guess when he went to the cross right and gave up you know took the punishment that we deserved but um how do you interpret passages like that in light of what you just said about kind of always wanting what's best for ourselves for eternity yeah. well on that particular verse i think paul's just talking about his emotions like to be totally honest i felt that way about my kids like i felt like you know i could like guarantee my kids go to heaven i there, there are times i'm like okay you know now the lord doesn't work out such people so, sure you know, yeah but there are times that i felt that way you know like Man, I wish I could just make my kids believe so much so that I, I almost. So yeah. I think that's all that Paul's doing. I don't think he's talking in some sort of theological like, okay. yeah. sense. Interesting. He's, you know, he's just got such love for his fellow Jews that you know, out of the overflow of that affection, he feels almost like he himself. Okay. Yeah, I know that was a little bit of rabbit trail, but just because you're bringing that up. So this 10:30. So this will be your challenge for next week. Think a little bit about what ways we see this love of self, and I would say the love of self that characterizes these wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. And again, maybe come back with some ideas in terms of not only what ways we see it, but what ways do we let it infiltrate our own lives and how do we avoid it? And, and we'll pick up right there and hopefully go through the list um, a little bit more in detail and 
and uh, keep moving along in, in chapter t or chapter three. Well, if, if you didn't notice today, I kind of tried to give us an overview of those first six or seven chapters. So it's not, I know we only got through one verse again. We didn't even get into verse two very much here, but we will move faster as we go along. So uh, I do appreciate the conversation as well. I thank you for you know giving feedback. It makes this go a lot more smoothly. So let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer and we'll end today. God, thank you that uh, you have given us your word as an instruction manual as to how to uh, best honor you and avoid uh, what is false, um, false in both doctrinally and, and behaviorally. Uh, we thank you that uh, you haven't left us in the dark with respect to how we ought to conduct ourselves and the people whom we ought to look to avoid. Uh, but we do pray that you give us discernment and right judgment, sound mind when it comes to these uh, issues, that we would always be loving, endure patiently the evil that comes our way as you've uh, commanded Timothy to do. We pray the same for, our, for ourselves. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, we pray that we wouldn't be uh, so uh, easygoing that we forget to stand for the truth and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we pray that um, for every individual in this room, that we would have fruitful conversations, particularly with those who do not yet know you, and that as a result of our faithfulness, they uh, may come to know you and we give you all the glory. In your name, amen.